lock, locked at the library, gotta read up Ain't no way we'll let the justice system beat us So when the ends don't meet, gotta read up And when your faith don't eat, gotta read up Losing all kind of sleep till I read up What's up, beautiful people? It is 11 o'clock. This is WIT 88.9 FM. Um, you're listening to The Re-Up with Malik Aleem. And I have a special guest in the building. I've uh, been trying to get this phenomenal woman on the show for quite some time now. It's finally happening. I'm very excited. Uh, Christiana Cologne, playwright, activist, artist, in many uh, uh, different ways. Um, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. No doubt. How are you? How you feeling? Man, uh, <coughs> I'm feeling effervescent, always rising to the surface. Effervescent. Yeah. Word. That's a good. That's a good word to be. Effervescent, iridescent. All <laughs> Your vocab. You know. We've talked about this before. <laughs> Your vocab is something serious, but um, dope. So, I, um, my first question. I don't know if you'll have the answer. Mm. Why is playwright spelled? <laughs> I do have an answer for you this. Do? I do. Good, because yeah. I've like I've been waiting for, to have you on here because I was like I, I get questions like that that popped in my head and I could have just googled it, but I wanted to ask yeah, you. Yeah, well, so it's spelled P L A Y W R I G H T. W R I G H T. Right. Not W R I T E. Which is what. Uh, folks might think right. that you write a play, right? right? Um, but rather, uh, one is a playwright because a play is wrought in a uh, way that the iron is wrought. Defi- uh, wrought. So yeah. define that. W-R-A-U? Uh, W-R... Oh, goodness. <laughs> I haven't even had any tequila yet. W-R-O-U-G-H-T. Right, okay. What does that um, mean? Like to render, right? So to um, to create out of, um, it, it's more of a, a painstaking bending of something into something else. Right. Okay. And I don't know if that's like the official definition right. in the dictionary, but as a playwright, that is the explanation that has been passed down to me. Does that have any significance to you as a playwright, as someone who? either writes or rots. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, uh, plays uh, for me um, is very much like um, a birthing process. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's not about me sitting down real cute somewhere at a desk and like tip tap tapping away and mm-hmm. then I have created a thing. Um, it is a lot of um, it's a lot of channeling, uh, mm-hmm. and then you know really like the channeling is where the draft comes in, uh, but where a play is wrought or rendered is in the revisions, and I spend years mm-hmm. revising my plays. Um, my play Octagon, I started that mug over from a blank word document like four times. Wow. And uh, over the course of, like, how long did that process? Mm, over the course of some years. I, um, I started writing it in 2012. I finished a first messy draft in 2013. 
And then I rewrote it like four times over the course of the next two, three years. And it just had its world premiere. Uh, Well, no, it had its world premiere in 2015 in London. And then it's had its American premiere uh, last year at Jackalope Theater in Chicago. So, so how does um, how is a a playwright born? Where does that where did that come from? Like a lot of people, I mean, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say, "When I grow up, I want to be a playwright." <laughs> like, did, did you like have any experiences at theater early on that made you like, "Yo, this is the shit I love"? Like, yeah. So, um, I always have been a writer. Mm-hmm. I've literally been writing creatively since I could hold a pencil. Um, and I never said I want to be a playwright. Like when I was a kid and people asked me what I wanted to be, I would be like, I want to be a clown. I want to be <laughs> a painter. I want to be a lawyer and I want to be the president. Those were like my wow. things. <laughs> um, but playwright was not on that list. And even when I conceived of myself as a writer, um, I was always a poet and had aspirations of being a novelist and maybe I still will be one one day mm-hmm. um, but playwright wasn't necessarily on that list but when I look back it was always really in me like I remember being like four and five years old and writing out scripts for my teddy bears and like <laughs> having my teddy bears like act out my lines right um, you know I remember writing out scripts and like casting whole scenes in my grandparents' um, kitchen and like casting my grandfather in these like skits. So that that spirit was always in me, um, but I didn't know that that was like a thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I've always acted, so. When was the first time you were an actor? Um, what, what was the, the situation? Well, I did like modeling and commercials since I was like two. Um, But my first stage production, I was 11. Mm -hmm. I was in a play called The Positive Evolution of Bongo Baker at ETA Creative Arts Foundation. Shout out ETA Creative Arts Um, Foundation. Yeah, you know, black theater on the South Side. Um, And I was like a part of the youth ensemble Um, And what's really beautiful full circle about that um, is one of the young women who was one of the leads in the positive evolution of Bongo Baker when I was 11. um, And I like looked up to her, you know, she's probably like 10 years older than me maybe. Um, Coco Elise, it's a beautiful, amazing woman. I remember being in the dressing dressing room, like looking at her like, oh my gosh, she is beautiful. She's a goddess. I want to be like her when I grow (laughs) up. And now she is in my upcoming play, Tilikum. Yeah, she's uh, she's playing one of the the whale drummers. Right. Yeah. So I mean, okay, so we we've gotten to Tilikum. Tilikum is let let tell me what is Tilikum? Where where did the idea come from? So Tilikum is your upcoming play, right? This is yeah. the one that you just got finished casting. Yes. Right earlier this week. Uh, so, no, that's no. a different play. <laughs> different one. Yeah. Which one was that? <laughs> the one I finished casting earlier this week is Florissant and Canfield. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So we'll 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 circle back to to Florissant and Canfield. But Tilikum is is a really interesting concept and idea that that we've talked about before, and I want you to kind of you know. 
run it down? How did how did that idea yeah. come to fruition? So um, Tilikum is inspired by a CNN documentary called Blackfish mm-hmm. that uh, explores killer whales, uh, orca whales in captivity in SeaWorld. And whales are a lot cooler than sharks, in my opinion. People, you know, you get shark week and all of these, like, big love for sharks, but whales Do people are, love sharks? I think people, people are really, afraid of sharks. I mean, but it's like an awe. It's like a a weird, like, awe yeah, that, that people it, have. Yeah, it's of, an adrenaline thing. Um, but yeah, sharks don't really don't really do it the way whales do it. I mean, whales are just amazing, amazing creatures, and that's part of what inspired the play. Um, so this documentary um, talks about the beginning of whales in captivity and sort of these um, folks that sort of got seduced into capturing orca whales, you know, in the '60s and '70s um, when marine theme park amusement was just starting out. Um, I.E. SeaWorld, right? Yeah, yeah. And what really sort of got my creative juices abuzz um, was learning more about orcas and how emotionally intelligent uh, and sophisticated they are and how tribal they are and how loyal they are and how mm-hmm. organized they are. And I was like, man, they are like more raw than mm-hmm. we are. <laughs> like They're out here like really building civilization and like um, holding each other down in really complex ways. So uh, the part of the brain in orcas that processes emotion mm-hmm. is proportionally triple that of a human's. Wow. Um, so orcas have elaborate, complex, emotional lives. Um, the complexity of their language and their ability to communicate. Um, orca pods from different regions of the world have like different dialects, basically. Um, so they have very complex um, language, basically. They have very complex emotional processing. Um, and then their pods are very loyal. So if an orca gets wounded uh, in a hunting trip, for example, and is disabled, the pod will carry the orca for the rest of its life and hunt for it. Um, orcas stay with their parents until their parents die. Um, so, you know, so that type of stuff I was really interested in. And then and thinking, you gathered this is all information that you learned from watching that documentary, Blackfish, yeah. or your own research. Yeah, so the documentary like is what first inspired me, right. and then definitely I went and did more research. Right, on right, my right. Own. But okay. uh, but these are all things that they say in the documentary um, to kind of paint the picture of the enormous cruelty that's happening when these ships are going out <laughs> into the ocean and kidnapping baby orcas mm-hmm. from their pods. Uh, and all of a sudden that starts to sound really familiar, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then the movie is called Blackfish. <laughs> um, yeah, right. You know, um, so there are these scenes of these uh, baby orcas being kidnapped from their pods and the, the pods being so intelligent that they come up with strategies to evade, to like throw off the ships. 
um, the but they're but they're not accounting for the fact that there are helicopters that are also tracking them. So even though the male orcas swim one way and send the female orcas and the children another way uh, to try to like split them up and throw them off, mm-hmm. um, they've got like helicopters tracking them, and then they start dropping bombs in the water to basically disorient them wow. um, and and circle and trap so it's them. It's like all-out warfare that you yeah. have to engage in to, in order to. To capture an orca. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then once they've like herded all the babies into this net, the older orca whales are like not swimming away. They're like floating nearby, calling out to their children. <laughs> um, it's absolutely heart wrenching, right? Um, and so then you've got these uh, magical, <laughs> mystical, emotionally complex. Um, highly linguistically sophisticated creatures that on average swim 100 miles a day in these concrete uh, pens for hours on end for human amusement. Mm-hmm. Um, so and in a, in a, an aquatic zoo, basically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the psychological torment that that is. Uh, and, and the various like levels of torment, right? Because... Um, Another practice in training the orcas is if one orca is like not getting the behaviors right, they will withhold food from all of them. Uh, and then that would create uh, violence inside the pens. So, you know, the one that's messing up gets beat up by the other right. orcas. Right. That's uh, so fucked up. So my, my, <laughs> my, I, um, I grew up playing sports and my dad used to be, he used to coach, you know, my sibling and I, my siblings and I. Um, and that would be one of his methods. Uh, yeah, I kind of kind of messed up. But withholding food? No, 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 no. <laughs> not not that part specifically, Lord. but the whole idea of punishing um, punishing everyone for the, for the quote unquote wrongdoings, right, or mistakes of an individual. So, like, if somebody if somebody was, you know, showing up to the space and not giving their 100%, then that person, he would, you know, let them go sit on the sideline and, and watch as everyone else would run sprints up and down the field. Oh. Right, 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 right. So, yeah, like, also pretty kind of messed up. I should talk to him about that. <laughs> like, what, 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 um, yeah, I mean, punishment is whack uh, yeah. in general. Um, but, yeah, so that, that kind of background, um, and then what really kind of locked it in for me was, so Tilikum, the name of my play, is the name uh, of an orca whale that's kind of like the most famous in SeaWorld history. Mm-hmm. And he was the largest, and he was kind of, for a time period, the most popular, like him and his trainer, Dawn, had the most popular show. He was really amicable with Dawn. Um, and because he was so big and such a huge attraction, they would harvest his semen to artificially inseminate female orcas across the planet. So a number of whales in captivity now are Tilikum's offspring. And, and, and so earlier you alluded to the similarities, um, of this situation, uh, to kind of the the right the the American the transatlantic, transatlantic slave trade and and the subsequent <coughs> kind of dispersal of you know black black people from Africa across America and the Caribbean yeah um 
and that was right. That that was one of the specific ways that 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 happened too. Like one of you know some of the the strongest um, males would be literally breeded right for um, for the purposes of creating offspring that would be. Um, yeah, for profit, for capital. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, so my play um, reimagines Tillicum's story as an allegory for slavery and mass incarceration. Uh, so it's a black man playing Tillicum, mm-hmm. uh, but he's playing the whale. So, um, so it's all from the perspective of the whale. Um, the only other two characters in the play are Dawn, his trainer, and uh, the owner of the theme park, which is kind of like... Uh, this kind of general white man mm-hmm. kind of represents like power and profit and white supremacy and capitalism. So you say those are the only other two characters in the play, but there are other representations of characters? Yeah, or so uh, Coco that I mentioned uh, is one of the drummers and composers in the play. So the other entities on stage uh, are these three drummers, these three women uh, drummers who play the whale, the female uh, whales that Tilikum is um, enclosed with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they only ever speak through their drums. Word up. Okay, so no, don't give us no spoilers or nothing. Yeah, that, that's, that's pretty much yeah. what I can tell you without right. giving away too much. So when, when can we, how can we experience this? Uh, um, and when? When will that be available? Yeah, it for? opens in 2018, uh, late June 2018. Uh, Sideshow Theater is the production company, so you can check out Sideshow Theater's website. Uh, and it will be at the Victory Garden space uh, in Lincoln Park in the upstairs theater at Victory Gardens. Cool. So, okay. So, so one of, one of the... My favorite things about doing um, this this podcast um, is learning about kind of the, the mechanics behind um, different art forms and, me- and mediums of expression. Um, specifically, you know, learning about you know what does it take to actually create a painting? Like for example, I, I remember one of my guests talked about like how much it costs to to like buy the the watercolors and the paints and the brushes and everything that goes into you know um creating a piece like that so i i want to ask you um as succinctly as possible (laughs) can you describe like the process (laughs) of how a play goes from an idea (laughs) into fruition right like there's there's a lot of steps right so we we were talking before about the the whole casting process right like that's an that's that's one of the steps yeah so can you can you can you break it down for me like what how does that work um for me the process is panic 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 (laughs) panic adderall play Uh, no, I mean, yes, but <laughs> more detailed than that. Um, so with each of these plays, you know, something will strike me in the way that something about Tillicum uh, struck me. And really, it was the final image of the documentary um, of seeing all of these white people marching with signs in the shape of a whale tail, um, basically like protesting 
uh, SeaWorld to like free all the whales. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, y'all out here marching for whales? Mm. Like you can really empathize and get mad and get upset yep. and make signs <laughs> for these March whales. The and you can't empathize with human, black human beings in captivity. Right. So it was that image uh, of seeing like white people galvanized <laughs> around this image of a whale. I was like, well, if they can get it for Tilikum, mm-hmm. then I can then I can make them get it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so that, you know, so I get an idea like that. And it was really that same night that like I literally just felt my whole body start vibrating. and I knew I was about to write this play. Um, so that'll happen. Um, so that's kind of more of the, the creative right mechanics behind it. Yeah. So, so what about so after the idea burgeons in your brain? And then you get it out. Then I have to find a development opportunity for it um, because I am not one of those playwrights that can just um, self-directed, like go away and write a play. Like I need deadlines. Mm -hmm. Um, I need collaborators um, to be accountable to, to keep me inspired, to keep that creative fire going. Um, So that looks different ways depending on the project. for a couple of my last few plays, um, it started as a 10-minute play. Um, so someone asked me to write something for a 10-minute festival mm-hmm. or a short piece for something, and I'll write a 10-minute play, and then that will open up a world that I know is much bigger than that 10 minutes and that I then have to is, revisit. Is that easier or harder to, to create than a, a full-length? A 10-minute play? Yeah. I, could write, I have written a 10-minute play in one day, yeah. Um, the so last, so the last play that I wrote um, this summer, Suspension, started as a ten-minute play that I wrote one day. I, I wrote it like all the day before it was due. Mm-hmm. Don't be like me. Like <laughs> <laughs> I am irresponsible when it comes you know, to my deadline. Whatever works. In my process. Whatever but. works. Or, so, um, so you, so then you find a development opportunity, right? Yeah. And that comes with. Right, that that uh it really depends. So it looks a lot of different ways. Um with Tilikum, I already had Sideshow reaching out to me uh about developing something with them and they were asking me to submit a proposal. Um they have an initiative called the Freshness Initiative where they basically commission over the course of their season playwrights to develop three new plays with them. Um, and there's no guarantee that they'll be produced, mm-hmm. but you know that's their investment in cultivating Chicago playwrights. So that's cool, good for Sideshow. Um, and so yeah, so they had been reaching out to me to submit something for this initiative, and I was batting around all of these ideas that were not as cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had had a bunch of meetings, and I was like, yeah, I might do this or I might do this, and we were all feeling kind of lukewarm about it. And then I had this idea, and I was like, yeah, this is what I'm doing. And they were like, well, typically we prefer that artists submit like two to three proposals. And I was like, nope, this is the play I'm doing. (laughs) Take it or leave it. They're like, all right, we'll take it. (laughs) Um, And so what that looked like with Sideshow was over the course of last season, um, there were three workshops about two to three months apart. So I would come in for the first workshop. You know, the first workshop, I maybe only had the first scene written. Um, and I had actors, and we read the first scene and had a discussion, and that was the workshop. 
and then I went away and I wrote some more and a couple months later I came back and we did that but we had more design elements so I maybe had like a director and a dramaturg and a choreographer mm -hmm. and then for the final workshop you I said a, di a director a dramaturg a dramaturg what is yeah. that a dramaturg oh dramaturgs are my favorite thing right. like they get the least amount of shine I think in the theater business but dramaturgs are a playwright's best friend um, so dramaturgs are basically like research assistants mm -hmm. um, they work closely on the script with the playwright um, they'll also like put together a research packet of like all of the references or details or themes of the play for the mm -hmm. actors mm -hmm. so you know, a dramaturg for Tilikum is going to put together a packet that's like all about um, orcas, given all the information about orcas, but then, you know, other themes of the play. So like the Pacific Northwest and indigenous tribes of the Pacific Northwest is kind of like one mm. of the themes of my play. So that would be something right. that they would research and put in the packet. And then my play also has a lot of Zulu and like South African influences. And so that would be in the, the dramaturgical packet. Um, and so the dramaturg is going to work with the actors in production in that way, but then throughout the script development process, going to work with me to like make sure that timeline makes sense. You know, mm -hmm. they're kind of like continuity editors, or if there's holes in the script or characters that need development, like dramaturgs have their yes. eye on those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, Isaac Gomez uh, has been a dramaturg um, on many of my projects, and he's amazing. So basically, the, the the dramaturg adds the context for for the actors and a, a, actresses. Yeah, once to, once the script is finished and gets to production, but in development, the dramaturg is working with the playwright. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Okay, so then you you get the director, the dramaturg, and the cat, um, choreographer. choreographer. So for Tilikum development, we brought in musicians and choreographer um, because what I've scripted is these actors creating these mythic, epic movement routines that are meant to sort of embody like the SeaWorld pool routines. Um, so thinking about what that looks like, thinking about how humans are playing whales, you know, on a, a SeaWorld set um, and what that looks like in the body. Um, and then for the last workshop, we brought in drummers to actually um, do the thing that I'm inventing here, which is where like actors and drums are having conversations to interpret mm -hmm. yeah. my poetry in the stage directions. Gotcha. And so, as you're writing, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's probably different for different projects, but as you were writing this specific play, did you have in mind individuals who you wanted to play some of the parts that that you needed to cast for or um, or not? Um, that's the kind of question that'll get me in trouble. Mm. <laughs> um, yes and no. So uh, what's really, really helpful for me, I'm the type of playwright that like, I want someone in my living room that as soon as I finish the monologue, I could be like, hey, could you come over here and read this? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so... I have a lot of actor friends, um, folks in my circle, and then folks who are just like really down to do that with me, um, who will give voice to the things that I'm creating right away. Mm -hmm. uh, and that often will shape like what kind of actor I imagine 
play in that part. Um, over the course of Tilikum development, I've probably had like five or six different men play Tilikum. Um, and they've all, you know, performed a different aspect of the character beautifully. And then hearing different takes on it helps me as a playwright find what it is. Right, right, right. The healthy balance. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, let me, um, let me take a quick little intermission. Cool. Um, and then and when we come back, I want to talk more about Florissant and... Canfield. Canfield. Yeah. Um, because, like, a lot of... I, I think my introduction to you as a person and an activist um, kind of floats around, you know, the, the idea of that story. Um, and, and a lot of the, you know, and a lot of the interfacing that we do, um, I think, was born of what that story kind of tells. Yeah. Maybe in a way. So I'd like to get into that. Excellent. Cool. Um, two whole cars, it was me, Dez, and me, three, right? And on the first car, in small letters, it said, all you see is, and then, you know, big, big, you know, black silver letters, it said, crime in the city, right? It just took up the whole yeah, car. Yeah, yeah, it, it was a whole car and shit, then it was a... Escuche la, la ciudad respirando. Escuche la, la ciudad respirando. Escuche la, la ciudad respirando. The new moon rode high in the crown of the metropolis Shining like who on top of this? People was hustling, arguing and bustling Gangsters of God thumb, hardcore hustling I'm wrestling with words and ideas My ears sprick, seeking what will transmit The scribes can apply the transcript yo, yo, This ain't no time where the usual is suitable Tonight alive, let's describe the inscrutable The indisputable We New York, the narcotics Draped in metal and fiber optics We're mercenaries Paid to trade hot stock tips for profits Thirsty criminals, dick pockets Hot knuckles on the second hands of working class watches Skyscrapers is colossus The cost of living is preposterous Stay alive, you play and die, no options No Batman and Robin Can't tell between the cops and the robbers We back We back, live and direct On the re-up uh, I am your host, Malik Alim I have uh, special guest in the building, Christiana Ray Colon. It's me. Um, and we are talking about, we're moving into uh, speaking about um, a play that just got finished getting casted this week, right? That is true. Fluorescent and Canfield. Indeed. Tell me, the, um, what, what is Fluorescent and Canfield about? So... I'll just talk about the title. So Florissant and Canfield is an intersection in Ferguson, Missouri. Um, Florissant Avenue is kind of the main thoroughfare in main Ferguson. Uh, where a lot of the iconic images of protests and tear gas and police rolling down the street in tanks, like those iconic images that we saw in the media in 2014, primarily on Florissant Ave. Uh, the quick trip that got burned down mm -hmm. was on Florissant Ave, the beauty supply store, like all of the alleged looting um, was kind of concentrated on that strip. And shout out to Florissant. I don't know if you know this, but my, my um, family has a lot of roots in that area. My dad grew up, grew up right around 
right around there. He went to McClure High School. Oh, word. Yeah. Um, Interesting. And I spent probably like two, three years of my my toddlerhood. Really? Right in around. Florissant? Yeah, right so then Florissant is also a municipality that borders first. Borders, yep. Uh, but it's the name of the street. And then Canfield uh, is the street, is an intersecting street that was the street that Mike Brown was walking up uh, toward the Canfield Apartments when he was pursued and murdered by yeah. Darren Wilson. Um, so that intersection for me um, is in many ways a representation of the many intersections of oppression in America, um, particularly for black people, for p particularly for uh, black people living in poverty, um, in hyper-policed, hyper-surveilled uh, zones. Mm -hmm. um, what is also special about that intersection is, is the intersection where a group of protesters uh, who later called themselves the Lost Voices set up a protest encampment um, and held space on Florida Avenue for 47 days after Mike Brown was killed vowing to camp out until Darren Wilson was indicted. Uh, and they held their space for 47 days <clears throat> until they were forcibly removed by the Ferguson Police Department. Um, and so what is special about that intersection and about that story uh, is that is the genesis of the Let Us Breathe Collective. Um, so I am uh, the co-founder of the Let Us Breathe Collective, which is an abolitionist alliance of artists and activists organizing through a creative lens to imagine a world without prisons and police. Say that. And uh, I didn't know that that's what we was about to do mm -hmm. uh, in 2014. Um, I really was just uh, pissed off that brothers and sisters were getting tear gassed in Ferguson mm -hmm. for protesting the unjust killing of this teenager. Um, and I was so enraged that I wanted to drive down there and I like Google mapped it on a Friday night and I was like, oh, it's only five hours away. It's lit. I'm going right now. Mm -hmm. But I had no gas in my car. So. <laughs> <laughs> like maybe not right, right now. Right, right. <laughs> um, but soon. And then also if I go, uh, I should go with more than just my rage. Um, and with a higher intention than just yelling at somebody's police station, which is mm -hmm. what I wanted to do mm -hmm. that night. Um, That's yeah. funny. So just to interject like that, um, you just said you wanted to go with more than just your rage. I think my, my introduction to um, activist work um, came around 2015. Um, when, when Baltimore, when the Baltimore uprising was happening in the spring of 2015, mm -hmm. um, and that, and that's precisely what I did. I showed up to an action with just my rage and ended up getting arrested because of it. Mm. Um, so I, I, I was a profound kind of statement because it is important for, um, no, rage is a, is a useful, absolutely. you know, uh, righteous indignation. You know, black people in America should all be enraged. Absolutely. <laughs> and we, I mean, we don't, we don't have a choice, but, but that, that's, that's kind of what, 
it, it was important to me, you know, after showing up with Just My Rage to be able to connect with a kind of a community around Chicago um, of people who had rage, but also had, um, you know, some of the, the tools and, and ideas to channel that in a, in a more productive way. Um, and, I, and, and that's a lot of what, you know, Let Us Breathe Collective and the individuals who make that collective up um, have taught me. Um, in the past couple of years, so that's dope. Well, thank you. You teach us a lot as well. Trying. <laughs> so, so what? What? So the 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 play for us in Canfield. Um, where can we? When is that going to come out? What? What? Where is it? Yeah. It so it's um it's going to be a student production at UIC. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's exciting about that? Um, is that it's going to be considered an amateur production because it's happening in an educational setting. Um, so it will still be available for a world premiere in a professional setting. Right, okay. Um, but because it's happening at a university campus, A, I'm getting to work with a legendary director that I've been wanting to work with for a long time, Derek Sanders, the former artistic director of Congo Square Theater, one of August Wilson's protégés. Okay. Um, He's going to be directing it. August Wilson of Fences yes. fame, right? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So, so Derek and August were close before he passed, and Derek has directed a lot of August's work. Um, and he's going to be directing my play next. Nice. Um, That's dope. And, and we've sort of been looking for something to collaborate on probably for about 10 years, for the entire duration of me being a playwright, really. Um, so I'm really excited about this first opportunity for us to actually put something up together. Um, but then also what's exciting about it is because it's happening at UIC, which means the UIC theater school, drama department, acting students are going to be the cast. Mm. Um, you know, my wildest imagination for Florissant and Canfield uh, was that it would be like, a large-scale production with the protest crowd, you know, cast as a large ensemble. And in the professional theater world, like, I would kind of have to be Lin-Manuel Miranda to get that kind of budget, you know? Um, Nobody's really hiring 30 actors to just, like, stand on stage in costume and chant, you know, indict, convict. Um, But that's that's the vision of the play. And because it's being, you know, its first production will be in an educational setting, like, I'm going to get to have that big cast. Um, So, you know, me and Derek are working on building out uh, the ensemble, the tribe, Mm -hmm. um, as it's written in the play. And so I'm really, really excited about that. That's going to go up in April. April. Yeah. At? At UIC. At UIC. At theater school, yeah. Cool. Mm -hmm. Dope. And and I... um, so I haven't, I think the past year, I think my first, really my first ever introduction to like actually consuming theater as an art, I feel weird about saying consuming art, I don't know, but yeah. experiencing yes. theater as an art um, was one of the, the table readings for, I think it was Florissant and Canfield last year. Um, uh, it was at the Goodman? Yeah. Oh. Was it at the Goodman or was Downtown? it at No, it was not at the Goodman. It was um I think it was at Victory Gardens. What was that? Mm-hmm. It was a table reading for something. One of your plays. 
Definitely. It could have been at Victory Garden. Did we do a reading for Florissant and Campus? I don't know what, what if it was specifically for that, but I I remember coming away from that. It, it wasn't even a full production, right? It was a, it was a reading, but it coming away from I I, I definitely cried during that. Like the the mm-hmm. visceral. It's a it, theater is a very visceral experience. Like if, yeah. Um, for folks who listeners who you know haven't experienced going to see like a, a like theater production, um, I would really encourage you to do that because um, it's been one of the most you know intense oh, we experiences. Did do a reading at VG. I just remember it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was lit. Yo, it was amazing. <laughs> it was lit. No, yeah, I felt so. That was yeah. Yeah, that was one of the first um, iterations of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we did another one at, at the Goodman later. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Florissant and Canfield is probably, man, it's hard to, you know, it's like trying to pick your favorite child. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really holds a special place in my heart because. It's not like documentary style um, where like, you know, this character represents this person necessarily. Like the characters are definitely composites of like different folks in the organizing mm-hmm. activist ecosystem. Yeah. Um, but the way that it came to be was just like the journey of the play for me um, is so serendipitous and like aligned with what I want my art to be doing in the world so um, you know as I mentioned like we the Let Us Breathe Collective like we didn't set out to start organizing you know it's like me and my brother were rapping and we had some poet friends and we had some filmmaker friends and some journalist friends and we just like wanted to do something to help the situation that looked really terrible (laughs) on social media Um, and when I reached out to the folks I knew that were on the ground in St. Louis, I was like, yo, like, I'm not an organizer, but I want to do something. Like, mm-hmm. what do people need? What could we bring? Right. And the answer that I literally got was gas masks. <laughs> um, That's fucking intense. Yeah. And so I was like, all right, <laughs> I guess. I'll figure out how to buy some wholesale gas masks. (laughs) And I literally did that. I hit up my friend who like worked at a manufacturing company and I was like, yo, how can I buy some wholesale gas gas masks? What would be the lowest possible unit cost I could get on them Mm mugs? And I set out with like a very narrow scope goal of raising enough money to bring a hundred gas masks. Um, and some like water bottles and medical and hygiene supplies to protesters in Ferguson. Mm -hmm. And so we launched this GoFundMe with the hashtag let us breathe. Um, You know, as we were doing this, Eric Garner video also came out. So, you know, Mm -hmm. double entendre, triple entendre, you know. December, November 2014. Yeah. Um, And so. That was the first action I ever went to. Yeah. So, So we set out to raise you know, just enough money for that. And the response was so overwhelming that we ended up raising 10 times as much money. Um, So we had this huge infusion of capital that we wanted to be responsible stewards of. Um, And so we went down to Ferguson with, 
you know, several caravans, several carloads of supplies to deliver to protesters um, and then intended to, like, figure out the activist ecosystem, who was mm-hmm. doing the work, and then just write a check for the balance of what we had raised to whoever that was. Uh, but instead, we met these folks that did not have an organization that were just like people that were camping out. And we were like, no, these are the folks that we need to build with. Mm-hmm. Like, not the 501c3, not no, not right. the like the preachers Need and the, the rainbow the push. The lost like, voices. Yeah, so the lost voices, the folks who like you know who weren't the lost voices when we met them. Right. They were just ten people camping out, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and overnight we quadrupled their camp. We like the literal the literal lost yeah, voices. Yeah, yeah, um, and so what you know that was our initial thing. We thought we were just going to go and like drop off supplies and like write somebody a check and then go home and go back to rapping and acting and Mm -hmm. writing plays. Uh, And life was never the same because once we started to build relationships with people in Ferguson, we went back the next weekend and then we went back the next weekend. Uh, And then our continued action of traveling to Ferguson and building with these people uh, became how can we use our Um, cultural platforms and our institutional access to amplify their voices and amplify their stories. Um, And it was through that um, and then bringing them to Chicago to feature Mm -hmm. at open mics and to do panel discussions um, that I wrote the 10-minute play version Mm -hmm. of Florissant and Camp. Shout out to Cross Pollination. Um, Yeah, so it was actually at Victory Gardens. It was an event called We Must Breathe Mm. um, that we brought Lost Voices to Chicago for. And I wrote these, like, two, like, micro scenes, um, these two, like, little three-minute scenes that became the seedlings for the full-length play that were read at this event. And Lost Voices were there, um, and then at the end of the event, we led the crowd out into the street to shut down traffic and like to protest in the street. Um, so this, you know, audience full of you know people. It was mixed people, but it was mm-hmm. a lot of white people who was not expecting to protest that day. <laughs> you know, it's like okay, so you got all your feel good, social justice, cathartic art on. Mm-hmm. Now, if you really bout it, we about yeah. to take the street. So yeah. come, come on, let's do it. Um, and we shut down the intersection of uh, Fullerton, Lincoln, and Halstead um, oh, okay. immediately after the show. We led the crowd out into the street, and it was very powerful. I did not know this story. That, that's amazing. Yeah, so that was the genesis of Florestan and Canfield um, with uh, Lost Voices here in Chicago, with Chicagoans, with this audience of people at Victory Gardens um, going from this event meant to sort of uplift the art of the movement and the voices of the movement and then actually galvanizing those folks into direct action for the first time. Um, And then over the course of continuing to work with Lost Voices, we built um, a live, we basically built a devised theater piece called Lost Voices Live um, that used pieces of my scripted writing Mm -hmm. interspersed with their storytelling to sort of recreate the documentary of their story in Ferguson. And we toured that piece, Lost Voices Live, at Indiana University and Oakton Community College. So I was developing this play, um, this like dramatized, fictionalized version of Mm -hmm. the events uh, in collaboration with their like real storytelling of the events. Um, And then, to bring it full circle, when I finished the full-length version of the play, uh, 
Um, I brought Lost Voices to Chicago to the Goodman for the final reading at the Goodman. Mm. And it was that weekend, like we had the reading um, of Florissant and Canfield with Lost Voices in the audience at mm -hmm. the Goodman on Friday and Freedom Square launched on Saturday and they were Freedom here in Square. Chicago for the launch of Freedom Square and basically in homage to their original occupation we launched our own occupation here in Chicago and two of the original members of Lost Voices stayed and camped at Freedom Square throughout that summer. Um, so, so that is why like that particular play um, and that journey of the play from its inception to like you know this now moment of its you know mm -hmm. I will say birth but like it hasn't had it doesn't have like a world premiere schedule yet so it's mm -hmm. still kind of like in yeah, development really um, but even still like its journey so far really um, I think completely captures what I want my art to be doing mm -hmm. which is bringing people to theater who would not ordinarily have access to theater mm -hmm. and then using theater to actually get people out of the physical theater and into the streets. Um, and at every step of the journey, my play has done that, and that's what I always want my art to be doing. Wow. That's powerful. It's powerful and amazing. And, um, and I, I mean, that, that, that brings us to a, to a close, hey. unfortunately. <laughs> Wish we could go a bit deeper into <laughs> all of that. But, yo, that's, that's, um, that's amazing. That's amazing. That's that's the the the, the definition of, of of art reflecting life and art struggle reflecting back onto the art. Like that's that's really dope. And I appreciate you coming through. I appreciate yeah. you sharing um, with us. One thing I like to ask folks though, um, before we sign off, what are you listening to right now? What's the the show oh, soundtrack man. to the soundtrack so, to your life? I have been. For the past several weeks, um, on this group called Ife, I-F-E, um, that's like sort of a contemporary take on traditional like Yoruba, Orisha music. Um, and so my Ife Pandora station, um, so from the full spectrum of like Ibeyi, um, who were just at the Metro a couple weeks ago, who's kind of like a contemporary um, Afro-Cuban with like its roots in the, the Ife uh, traditional African religious tradition. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's my stuff right, right now. now. So Give me a I, song. Give me a, a, a song title. Oh. Uh, Yuma Vision. So Y-U-M-A Vision. Their other song, Umbo, U-M-B-O, is probably the one I like better. Thank you, Christian. Yeah, thank you for having me.
to the sun won't come down Come down Come down Only your love can turn me round Bring it to the ground won't come down Come down Come down It's gone but the day seems far away I feel you all around Wait, come down